Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for coming and for tearing yourselves away from the analysis of the budget, which I'm sure is what you'd rather do. Um, I'd just like to say that this evening's event is going to be recorded and it's going to be podcast. Um, I'd just like to start by saying thank you very much to our sponsors, um, Reuters, Editorial Intelligence and the Orwell Trust. Over the past couple of years, Reuters have been running a whole series of what they call newsmaker events, which is bringing together opinion formers to discuss topical issues, and this is one in that series. Editorial intelligence new as it is will be familiar to all of you. And lastly, I'd like to thank the Orwell Trust. And during the course of this meeting, um, Bernard Crick is going to be announcing the shortlists for the Orwell Prizes, both for books and for journalism. We've got a distinguished panel with us this evening, and they're each going to speak for five or six minutes, about which I shall be very strict, um, before we throw the meeting over to questions from the floor. And they bring a range of opinions and, I hope, prejudices to bear on, on this issue. Matthew Paris was a Conservative MP before he turned to journalism, first as a presenter and then as a writer. And he's won awards both for his reporting and for his political commentaries. Polly Toynbee is the award-winning Guardian columnist, writer and broadcaster, and she was formerly the social affairs editor at the BBC, so they will both be able to talk about this from the perspective of print and broadcasting. Sean Maguire here, who will be less familiar to you, um, works for Reuters, where he leads their coverage on European political and general news. And he and his team cover all the major political, economic and social events in the region and have to interpret them for an international audience. Indeed, they sometimes go beyond it. Sean was one of the first journalists to enter Baghdad in the recent Iraqi war. John Lloyd is a contributing editor of the FT, where he writes a weekly column. He's been a reporter and a producer on current affairs programmes, and he's also written several books. And lastly, Derek Wyatt MP is here to bring a politician's perspective on this. He's the Labour MP for Sittingbourne and Sheppey, which is a seat he's held since 97. And he chairs six all-party groups, including those on the internet and, the commercial, and commercial radio. And in 2004, he was listed as one of the top internet visionaries for the past decade. They're expecting a lot of wisdom from you, Derek. I'd just like to say it's fortuitous, really, that this meeting was um, held on this day, because um, there couldn't be a more timely moment to be wondering about the state of our political journalism. I mean, we've hard on the heels of two rather sensational scandals... Um, we're now having voices from across the political spectrum for the first time, from The Guardian to The Economist, saying that Blair's time is up and that he ought to go. And at the same time, it's obvious that the nature of journalism and the way in which it's delivered to audiences is shifting very rapidly indeed. Just last week, The Guardian launched its new blog site, which is requiring all columnists and its reporters to attempt to have an interactive dialogue with their readers of the kind that they've never had before. And the BBC, as you've probably noticed, is endlessly promoting its new podcasting of all its programmes. And we know that all this is taking place against a declining newspaper circulation, falling audiences for television news, and a much um, greater use of the internet by individuals who are interested in politics and news. So it's clear that in the future, political journalism is really going to have to fight to be heard by an audience who are going to have so many other things to take their attention away. And so I think the key question that we have to be thinking about is what does our current political journalism deliver? As it's practiced now, does it aid or hinder political understanding, political engagement and political debate? Because journalists like to think that the way we practice journalism in this country holds politicians to account. But the question is really, does it drive them into a corner? Does it prevent them from being honest with us, 
we like to think we keep them honest, but perhaps we're just forcing them to be dishonest because by questioning them so closely, by seizing upon every gaffe, by jumping on anything that they say, which is not something we've expected them to say or heard them say before, we then prevent them daring to go beyond the bounds of platitude. And I think the last key question about this is, are we, in the field of political journalism, paying attention to the most significant stories? I mean, my own particular concern at the moment in this area is what I think are the very dangerous bits of legislation of the ID Cards Bill and the Legislative and Regulatory Reform Bill, otherwise known as the Abolition of Parliament Bill by the people who oppose it. And I think it's interesting that there hasn't been very much coverage of those in the mainstream press, as opposed to the acres and acres we've read about the Jarl Mills scandal and their internal marital arrangements. So... I kind of have very differing views on this. Um, and there's just one thing, last thing I'd like to say before I turn to them, which is that it's become evident talking to people about this issue that when some people say political journalism, they actually mean political comment. Some people mean everything that print journalists cover, and some people mean the whole range from Today and Newsnight to everything else. So when you're speaking, I'd just like you to make it clear to the audience what it is that you are talking about. So our first speaker tonight is Matthew Paris. I um, I think that um, every print journalist knows his position on the page and knows the position of his page in the newspaper. And within the context of a discussion like this, I see what my position it is. It is to strike a note of um, smug, arrogant uh, complacency. <laughs> <laughs> to say that all is well and to drive the likes of Polly... Toynbee to uh, a froth of moral outrage. So here I go. I think all is well with, uh, <laughs> with uh, political columnism, and I think all is well with political journalism in Britain. I think that political journalism in Britain has moved adroitly into uh, a vacuum created by the lack of an effective opposition over many years. That vacuum may soon be filled by an effective opposition, but hasn't been Yes, and while the vacuum has been there, it has been for the media and for the press to move into it. Move into it, we have, and I think effectively. I don't buy the idea that it is each individual journalist's role to sit like a French adversarial or inquisitorial court and decide what is the truth, balance the arguments one side against the arguments on the other side and present to the reader what is supposed to be the finished, perfected, balanced view of the truth. I, I believe in the adversarial system. I believe it, in it in our courtrooms. I believe in it in the House of Commons. And I believe in it in journalism. I think it's important in journalism to have different voices with different opinions, opinionated people, polemicists, even within newspapers, even within the reporting of politics to have polemical newspapers. I know where the Daily Mail stands. I know where it's coming from. I know where it's going. I know where the Guardian is coming from. I know where it's going. I have the choice of different newspapers to read. I have never felt that as a columnist, my job is to be completely fair. I've always felt as a columnist that my job is to be an advocate. I take a point of view and I make the best case that I can for that point of view. I may sometimes know that there are answers, there are other cases that can be made. I leave those to other people to make those cases. Journalism, to me, is a war of different voices, a war of different opinions, a war of different versions of the truth. 
And British journalism, I, I think, conducts that war with a, a style uh, which should be, perhaps is, the envy of the rest of the world. I love approaching my column every Saturday morning, which I do on a, on a Friday morning, approaching my column with a view as to what I can say that will get people going on this issue. I do not ask what is the absolute truth on the issue. I ask what debating case can I make for a point of view for which I have some sympathy, and I leave it to others to make the alternative point of view. I think there's something patronising about the individual journalist thinking that he or she can even approach the truth, that he or she can even approach objectivity, that his or her readers are not themselves capable of listening to different voices and arriving at their own balance of what is the truth, that readers are incapable, in a sense, of making that judgment for themselves. We must make it for them. We must, therefore, be fair. We must be objective. We must present them with the finished product. I don't try to present my readers with the finished product. I present them with one ingredient. That ingredient is me and my opinions, and they may be opinionated, and they may be polemical. This is true of print journalism. I think that broadcast journalism is not qualitatively different, but that it needs to proceed with a little bit more care. I think that within print journalism, the signposting is clear. I think we know what is a report. We know what is an opinion. We know where our newspapers and their editorial lines are coming from. I think readers are wise to that. I think within broadcasting, the slewing over of opinion into comment into report or the other way round is actually rather harder for viewers and listeners sometimes to get their heads around. Especially with a state broadcaster like the BBC, I think it is very important to signpost what is humour, uh, what is fact, what is report and what is opinion. I hope that within newspapers like mine it's very clearly signposted and within that signposting opinion I intend to give my opinion. I do not intend to try to reach some objective, <coughs> judgmental view of the facts. That I think is healthy. That I think actually has a kind of humility about it which any idea that every report, every journalistic opinion ought to be a, a carefully balanced view of all the facts avoids. So I'm pleased to be a polemicist, I'm pleased to be unfair. Long may unfairness reign in journalism, long may many different unfair voices arguing in different causes compete with each other in journalism and let the reader, let the listener and let the viewer decide. Matthew, has that indeed enraged you, Polly? Yep, you've had the complacency, now you're going to get the froth of moral outrage. <laughs> <laughs> so here, let's go. I'm, I'm not going to talk just about comment, but about the generality of political, of the political positioning of, of the press. I think in this country we probably have uh, the worst, uh, probably the worst uh, press in the democratic world. It's certainly, a, it's certainly a hot competitor, and it's been so for a very long time. I think historians often underestimate uh, the impact of the press on the last uh, century of British history. It tends to be a sort of footnote, meanwhile the press was writing X or Y, as if that was um, a sort of add-on fact, as opposed to an integral part of the nature of our politics, the direction they've taken, why we've had a, a conservative century. Um, 
the battle between Northcliffe and, 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 and Rothermere, you can take it back to uh, North, Northcliffe and Beaverbrook, you can take it back to there, you can take it back to when Northcliffe, towards the end of his life, was asked, so what was your winning formula for this fantastically successful paper, the Daily Mail? He said, I give my readers a daily hate. <laughs> and he's still at it, still works, still does it. Um, and I think that the nature of the British press and the shape of its ownership over many years does a great deal to explain our European exceptionalism, our xenophobia, our insularity. I think it's much more about that than it is about being an island, and our anti-Europeanism that is so profound and so unlike uh, most other European countries. We now have a press that's owned by four, three ultra-right-wing magnates uh, who own 80% of the press. You've got Desmond, Rothermere, Barclay Brothers, previously the disgraced Black, and Murdoch, of course, who owns over 40% 40 of the readership. And they all sing more or less the same tune. Murdoch, of course, being quite subtle, plays a kind of cat and mouse because he likes to use his power to... To, to have as much influence as possible over politicians, so he'll play footsie with Labour when it suits him. Uh, he likes to be on the winning side. He'll employ all sorts of people with, with, with some different voices. But he is the mighty power who has to be negotiated, the first stopping point for any new leader of any party, every single one of them, or would-be leader. He's the first place they go, first place. Blair went... Brown, you know, has, keeps Erwin Stelzer, who's not a particularly tame member of the stable, uh, up his sleeve. Uh, and uh, it's um, a depressing sight to see, you know, the first place that Michael Howard went, uh, Cameron. They all, they've all have to go and pay uh, obeisance <coughs> to the great man. Um, I think that the strong right-wing flavour of these newspapers and their dominance and their vociferousness, combined with the fact that it's always been an over-competitive market, becoming more strident uh, in, 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 in a comp competition for fewer and fewer readers over many years, has produced this poisonous atmosphere. I think there's no doubt at all that the press, you know, even as it's in a, a downward spiral, sets the agenda for political debate and discussion, certainly for the broadcasters. I've worked long enough in the BBC newsroom to know about looking at the newspapers and seeing what, what the BBC's agenda should be. And if the Daily Mail goes on about something for two days in a row, even if it's a B in its own bonnet, sure enough, eventually the BBC will pick it up and say, controversy is raging over whatever it is the B Daily Mail has decided to rage over. And the BBC will pick it up and will bully and will use the, play the same sorts of games in the same sorts of, of terms very often as the press, uh, unaware of the extent to which their own agenda is set by a very, very politicised and unjustly politicised, unjustly balanced press. I think as a result, we have a desperately uninformed, underinformed citizenry. I don't know how it's possible to govern in a country where so much of what goes on is simply never reported because it's of no interest whatever to a predominantly right-wing newspaper. Vast amounts of government money are spent every day of the week that is never described, written about, accounted for, huge amounts of money on regeneration programs, boring, boring, all good, good worksy stuff, huge amounts on under fives, huge amounts of programs going on, a lot of it really fantastic stuff that nobody ever gets to hear about. I don't know how you can govern when you reach a point where Mori and others now report that people say when asked about how they feel about the services that uh, they're, they're paying higher taxes for, 
Well, we're very lucky in our area because actually my GP surgery has been rebuilt, my local school's been rebuilt. We've got a fantastic new head teacher and terrific numbers of classroom assistants who never used to be there. Our hospital is really very good and we only got to wait about three months now. Whereas I can remember, you know, when my granny had an operation 10 years ago, she had to wait a year or more. We're just very lucky where we are. But when asked, what, how is the NHS, how is education, how is crime, the story is quite different because they take it from the press and they say, it's all a disaster, we're all going to hell in a handcart. Because they believe what they read in the press more than the evidence of their own eyes. And when you reach a point like that, you know that this is deeply dysfunctional and wrong. I mean, how you put it right, that's a much more difficult question. Uh, but at least you can start by acknowledging that this really is a dysfunction that goes to the very heart of our society and our politics. And I do think it's time that politicians just got a bit of spine and started hitting back if they would stand up and just uh, not wait till they're hit or in some kind of trouble and then squeak in pain, but actually as a matter of, of policy and a, a, as, a, as a matter of their uh, position and in the speeches they make, just keep on and on and on about the press. Uh, I think that that's, uh, that's not a very optimistic ending to this, but I think at least starting by making the citizens as aware as they can be about the dysfunction and shaming the broadcasters a bit about following it so cravenly, following the newspaper agenda so cravenly and demanding a wider agenda and more questions asked about where has all the money gone, what's it being spent on, and goodness me, isn't it some of it really being spent rather well on rather interesting things people would be fascinated to read about but never get to hear about because everything is reduced to the Westminster game in terms of political reporting and so little policy gets reported. It's all politics. Thank you. Sean, do you, how do you feel about poli what police said, given that you've got so much of an international perspective on it? Well, you're a tough act to follow, because I was going to start by talking about how grateful we should be for having a free press in the UK. Um, uh, but uh, I shall plough on regardless and say that, in comparison to very many countries, there is a free press in this country. Um, and it is opinionated and noisy um, and sometimes reckless, but arguably that might be a price to pay for freedom from state control. Um, the other thing I I should point out is the broadcast sector, I mean, it's required to be unbiased and balanced, and that's something that you don't get when you watch state television in many other countries in the world. So we should be grateful for that too. And I think also there is a good case to be made that um, the British press does a job in holding uh, power to account. <coughs> you mentioned that, Jenny. Um, and I'm not sure it would, it would say that that's its mission statement, but there are plenty of good recent examples of where we've had um, investigative journalism that's dug up uncomfortable facts for those in high office, and I think that's a role that, that the press should play. Now, the question that we'll be asked, and I'm sure John will raise this, is you know, does it play that role responsibly? I did a straw poll of uh, some of my colleagues who work uh, across Europe, and they said the answer is no, um, that the British press is the most aggressive um, and negative press that they, that, that they can see across Europe. Um, I'm sure we don't want a deferential press in the UK, but does it have to be an arrogant press? It doesn't have to be a press that sees its job as the unseating of cabinet ministers and the belittling uh, of people in public life. Um, and I'd be more comfortable with the aggression of the British press if uh, it was based on solid sources. And while this may be you know, a technical argument um, for a practitioner, an everyday practitioner, this is a, a fundamental argument that 
Um, there are great, so there are also great scoops out there, but very much of the reporting, particularly in the British print press, is based on on very flimsy sources. Um, there's very, there's a lot of very sloppy journalism out there, a lot of very weak journalism, lots of use of single sources, lots of use of disguised sources. Um, there's still a heavy reliance on anonymous briefings. Even after the Gilligan case, there's really not been any great reform of the way uh, the print media goes about its business. Um, there's still excessive use of formulations like, it is understood that, it is said that, friends of the individual said. Um, um, the, the, the desire for exclusive titbits allows journalists to be spun um, uh, in a rather outrageous way. Um, uh, often when I come into work in the morning and read the British press, I see blazing headlines. And I think, oh, this is an interesting story. And then I actually read through the piece. And there's not a substantive quote in the piece at all. There's really, really no story there at all. Um, a lot of stories are still based on you know, tendentious off-the-record briefings, and then these are extrapolated out into stories. Um, I think another flaw of, of, of UK political journalism is it's, it's incredibly Westminster-focused. Um, you know, you're really getting the reporting of a tiny village and, uh, and all its gossip and intrigue. So what you get is, is minor differences sort of distorted and blown out of context. So there's very little, uh, from what I can read, very little real regional political um, coverage. And sometimes when I read um, you know, by-election coverage of, by lobby correspondents, I get the feeling that these correspondents have set out on, you know, on, a, on a dangerous mission out into the wilderness, and it's a sort of exotic excursion for them outside London. Um, and, I, and I really wonder whether um, you know, our you know, political journalism is doing a very good job at reporting you know, regional political trends and what's really going on uh, in the UK. Um, the intense kind of Westminster focus makes, makes uh, UK political journalism rather clubbish um, and it's sort of insular. Um, and the lobby correspondents tend to hunt in packs. Um, you know, they all pile in on one story and they take a line and then they, they, they savage it to death. Um, it, and I'm sure we'll have a discussion about, you know, the chicken and the egg. What comes first? Was the government defensive before the media started to attack them or, or which way around? But, but certainly you have a very defensive government and a government that fights very, very hard to try and keep, keep on message and to set its own agenda. Um, and it's fighting against the press. It's determined to, you know, to not to let it set the agenda. Um, and one final thought. You raised the issue of blogging. Um, British, uh, uh, British papers are full of opinion full and full of comment, pages and pages of comment and opinion. And I wonder how long people are going to keep paying for that and how long people are going to keep uh, and how long proprietors are going to keep uh, paying for people to write that sort of stuff. Because the worst of it is really no better than, than your average blog. Um, and the MySpace generation knows that it can get, to get its blogs for free on the internet. Perhaps that's, that'll be a death knell for those people making their money out of it at the moment. So, Derek, you know a lot about the net. What do you think of that analysis? Uh, I don't know yet. Um, I, I thought I would entitle my talk Two Books and an iPod. The, the two books are um, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, Democracy, the Internet and the Overthrow of Everything by Joe Trippi, who was Howard Dean's fundraiser. And uh, there's a wonderful piece in here where... Uh, he finally raised $100 million for Howard Dean. And then Howard Dean says, but I didn't want to be president of America. It's a fantastic case of, of how you can raise and what the Internet does. And 
As, as interesting, I, th I think, and both published in 2004, is We the Media, Grassroots Journalism by the People for the People by Dan Gilmore of the San Jose Mercury, who's moved from writing to actually uh, the Internet and set up his own site. These are the, most, the two most stimulating books I've read on politics for a while and have certainly influenced the way that I look on the landscape. And in trying to... And I'll come to the iPod later... Um, but in, in trying to think about this, I thought, well, if we were in 1996, we would have the Today Show on Radio 4, BBC News at 9 o'clock, ITV News at 10 o'clock, Sky News, CNN, Panorama, perhaps First Tuesday this week, World in Action, Email, The Broadsheets, The Tabloids, and Hello Magazine. In 2001, five years ago, we would have had Today Radio 5 Live, BBC News at 10 o'clock, ITV News at 10.30, Sky News, CNN, Yahoo!, uh, broadsheets and tabloids, websites, and an internet bubble. Today, um, we have the Today's programme still, Radio 5 Live, Al Jazeera, BBC World, BBC 24, a French news channel, Google, Yahoo, eBay, uh, the iPod, the blog, and there's a very good piece, actually, in the EI Mag this, this time about blogging by Steve Moore. Um, Guardian Unlimited and Times Online, which are very good, and... Finally, a change in the broadsheets because we've got sort of smartoids and tabloids. And finally, in this year, we've probably got IPTV and podcasting. And they are significant changes uh, in the five years. And what I've tried to do is then say, well, okay, here we are in 2011. So how are we receiving our information? And I think today might have retired... I think Radio 5 might be the leading news channel. I think there'll be news channels in English, Arabic, Spanish, Chinese, <coughs> Hindi and Swahili, but they'll be all live on the internet. They won't be broadcast, they'll be narrowcast. And BBC News and ITV News will be in a conundrum because they won't quite know what to do or how to do or whether they should be on television or not. And it is a severe dilemma for them to give, to give for instance, a... A 10-year licence fee for the BBC is quite interesting because who can predict where we will be in the transmission of information, even three years, let alone 10 years? I, I think it's a big dilemma we're facing, and I'm not sure we're there yet politically. And so I actually think there is a significant cultural change going on beyond this London community towards podcasting and videocasting and television. And so I will come to the iPod because it's quite a significant piece of information. At the moment, you can only get uh, Housewives, what's it called, that program? Um, desperate. desperate Anything. But you can only get it about an hour and a half after it's broadcast in America if you pay. You can have it downloaded to your PC or your Apple and across to here, and you can watch it. You can watch about 2,000 hours currently on your iPod within an hour and a half of broadcasting anywhere in the world if you pay. So actually, the only thing that is live is news and sport and the big occasion on television. And therefore, you will go to a pay-per-view market because it's already recorded. You could watch Coronation Street this morning if you wanted to, if it was available. If it was allowed, you could watch if there was a pay-per-view audience because it's recorded 10 days ago or two weeks ago, whatever it is. Most of television is like that. So... I think that there's going to be a sort of clash between what we've been offered, which is rather, rather up here, to the podcasting and the web blogging, which is down here. And I think this group's going to win. 
And uh, I don't have any evidence for that, but my, my sense is, and I look at how I get information currently, and it's definitely from the web first. Uh, and I think that there are very, very few writers that you would pick up a newspaper for. Uh, and in the end, that's what drives newspaper sales, actually. And I think, and I may, I'm, I'm happy to take this, I, I can't see how newspapers will view themselves in five years' time. I don't know whether they'll view themselves as giving you clips first on the mobile to whet your appetite that Polly's article says this, so I go and buy it, or whether it says, actually, for another 10p, we can send it to your website. Or I can't quite see where the model is, but I do see that there is a significant and fundamental and profound change happening this year for the first time because the web's arrived. It's like 2.0, as people are saying. It's no longer this funny little thing. I mean, you know, for Google and eBay to take what they've done on the market space ahead of, say, Microsoft, Intel, Motorola, all those old analogy com uh, companies, is quite sensational. You would not have predicted that two years ago. So I, I think the space is changing. I can't be absolutely certain where it's going to go in 2011, but my, I'm not confident that we understand where it's going in 2006. Thank you very much, Lastly, John, I hope you can pick up on some of those points, particularly whether your well-known fears about how the press um, reaches and treats politicians is going to be affected by that. Uh, thank you, Jenny, and thank, uh, thank you for asking me to pick up on these points. It's, it's hard, if not impossible, to be as smugly complacent as Matthew <laughs> from The Times, or indeed as morally frothing <laughs> as Polly from The Guardian. But... Um, uh, coming from the FT, I should be fair, <laughs> balanced, objective, just a slightly tedious, uh, and make the following points. Uh, actually, following my fellow countrymen, uh, it's the fate of the Scots to cool the savage passions of the, Eng of the English breast. <laughs> and, uh, and to pick up on something on, on Polly, which unusually I disagree with her about, I think that we are not the worst press, uh, or anywhere near it. I think we're actually quite near in some ways, a very mixed press. Uh, some of it's, it's around the best, in political reporting especially. I think that what we have avoided in Britain, for a variety of reasons, which take too long to go into, um, is the collusive nature of much of the continental press. The, 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 the press that I understand, the Italian and the French, uh, are the, the political reporting and the reporters say this themselves are caught in a series of networks and collusions with the politicians and the parties which make it very difficult indeed it's sometimes I think almost functionally impossible for them to get at some kind of objectivity or truth truth uh, uh, according to Matthew doesn't exist I'll, I want to come back to that but the, it, it makes it very hard in, in the other press I understand Russia is actually a very interesting point in Russia. Since the fall of communism, reporting, including political reporting, became terribly free in Russia. You could read fantastic things in the Russian papers, huge amounts of uh, revelations and investigations. Uh, uh, the trouble was twofold. One, you had no idea if they were true or not. And secondly, they, the government didn't give a damn. Uh, Yeltsin, insofar as he read anything, um, simply didn't care, and it had no effect. So you, you, you saw there, it was a graphic instance, that 
that for the press or the media to be important, it had to be treated as important. You had to have a political culture in which the politicians, the public figures, the society, the political society as a whole, regarded it as important. I think we are quite independent. I think that, I agree with Sean very much on that. I think that's a great thing and not all that common. I mean, not just in the, demo, uh, the democratic versus the undemocratic world, but within the democratic world. I think the, the independence of the British press is something to be treasured. Uh, we are independent from politics, political parties, uh, politicians. We are not, of course, uh, and here I do agree with Polly, we're not, of course, independent of, of proprietors, although, again, relatively, we're more independent than many others in, in many other countries. So I think it's not bad. But... Um, it was a piece by one of Polly's colleagues this morning, Jonathan Friedland, um, good piece, um, which mentioned in passing that when the Prime Minister gave a speech yesterday on foreign relations, uh, Jonathan said his voice was drowned out by the political noise. Now, it's the kind of thing that is said all the time. It's always said on the Today programme. When, when one presenter is interviewing a journalist... Uh, BBC journalist, and they say, how is the crisis going? The crisis, whether it's Gate or Peerage-gate or whatever, and the reporter says, well, John, it's not going away, is it? Uh, which means <laughs> we are still talking about it. That is, we are doing it. We, the media, are in the frame. We are part of the script. Indeed, we're writing the script. So when we say there is lots of political noise around, yes, there is. There is political noise about... Uh, about Ehrman Gate, uh, and so there should be, but it's also a media noise. Indeed, much of it is mainly media noise. It's a media political noise, and one of the big gaps, I think, not just in our journalism, but in journalism as a whole, is that we write ourselves out of the script. We, as it were, um, pretend to be fleas on the wall, dispassionately, or indeed uh, not dispassionately, watching, commenting upon the political events, actually we are constructing, deconstructing, reconstructing politics continually, and the more so as parties and politicians and politics become weaker, because that, I think, has been left out of the narrative. Yeah. Politics is it's weaker now. Uh, governments look strong, and, and uh, that's what they are, but actually the underpinning of politics, the political parties on which, after all, democratic politics depend, are losing out in every, every which way. They're losing members, they're losing activists, they're losing uh, attention, and they're, of course, losing votes. Fewer and fewer people vote in general elections. We in the media say that's the politicians' fault, that people are being turned off politics for a variety of reasons. We should at least consider and consider seriously how much of it is our doing, what we are doing in turning people off politics, because I think an inquiry might find that we are doing quite a lot in that, in that, uh, in that sense. On the truth, I disagree entirely with Matthew about the truth. Uh, I think he was talking about columns, which in a sense is fair enough. Uh, um, nobody expects columns to be truthful. Um, but one has, I think, an expectation that the reporting is truthful in the sense that there is something which is the holy grail. It's out there somewhere. It's the truth. You will never arrive at it. You cannot arrive at it because the truth is immensely complex, hugely difficult to capture, and especially on events like politics where there are a thousand different points of view or confused events like wars and so on, it's hideously difficult to find. However, 
Reporting, it seems to me, indeed journalism, the basis of journalism as reporting, is in, unintelligible without some notion that the truth can be told. If it can't be told and it doesn't matter a damn, why bother? Why not, as indeed we are increasingly in some cases doing, just go in for the fiction and the entertainment? If there isn't some sense in a reporter's mind when he or she goes out with the notebook or the camera that you're going to bring back something which is at least a sketch of the truth in the sense that a reasonable person of any view can say this is something like the event, this is something like the series of events, then I think uh, uh, journalism has no role. It is, as I say, different with, uh, with, with columns. I think we're, and uh, others have mentioned this, I mean, we are extremely rich in columnists. There's, the late Hugo Young did an essay, I think, for a, a preface and a collection of his book just before he died, where he remembered that when he began in journalism in the late 50s, I think it was, uh, there was one political columnist in all of the newspapers, which I think was in the Times. One political columnist. There were, of course, editorials, unsigned editorials, leaders, by the paper's leaders, writers, but there was one column, signed column. Uh, he had run into, just a little while before he wrote this, he'd run into an acquaintance who worked in Downing Street who had been tasked for what reason one can only guess, with finding out how many columnists there were in the national newspapers. And he'd got to 253, I think it was, and they were still counting. So the inflation of opinion, partly, I think, because um, it's, it's, well, the, the distinguished columnists on the table are not cheap, but it's, it's possibly cheaper than <laughs> reporting, because reporting is terribly expensive. Uh, so that cheapness may have something to do with it. I think also that it's our tradition of being combative, uh, which is good. Uh, it's, I think, a sense, as Derek was saying, that um, newspapers sell on, you know, you'll buy it if Matthew Paris is in or Polly is in today, you will go out, a number of people will go out and do that. And also I think it's a sense, too, that, again, I differ from Matthew in this, it's the, kind of, it's the opposite of humility. I think it is partly that we in the media have got arrogant. And in this sense, this, uh, I'll end on this. I, I think especially true in broadcasting that, um, and Matthew again brought it up, that when the opposition is weak, the press must be, or the media must be the opposition. Well, no. The media cannot be the opposition because the opposition is the opposition. And because in a political opposition, uh, the, uh, really the only way, or the, certainly the, the main way in which that opposition has any hope of attracting attention is through the media, the media is then in the, in the position of being able to not give any or very little space to the opposition's voice and then blaming it for having no voice. And in that position, we find ourselves very often. We found ourselves in that position throughout or much of the labor period in, uh, in opposition during the Thatcher and Major years, or at least the Thatcher years, and we found ourselves in that position through much of the past 10 years or so of a new labor government. And it doesn't wash, really. We should and can hold people to account, but we are not in opposition and should not and cannot be. Thank you. <laughs>
I'd just like to know uh, what the panel think, um, what the coverage of the loan story um, says about political journalism. Thank you very much. I think I'll take another couple as well, since that's for everybody. Yes. Uh, I worked um, many, many years ago uh, for the Labour Party as a press officer, and I've worked in the private sector uh, ever since. And I've got uh, two um, possible solutions to the uh, problems some people have raised, neither of which involve uh, curbs on journalists, which I'd be interested in hearing the panel's views on. Um, The first is, having worked in the private sector uh, in listed companies for a number of years, we are very tightly governed by the Financial Services Act, uh, and that is a restraint not simply on the press, but actually on the spokespeople for the companies. And you are governed by very strict rules, and you are hauled in once a year by the company solicitors and warned of terrible things that will be for you you, should you mislead anyone. Uh, And those uh, rules have been changed in the past year and strengthened in that for many years, you got off the hook on a speculative M&A deal or something of the sort by saying the company has no comment and you would hope it would go away. You now have a duty that you must disclose. If there is a market rumour running, you must disclose any talks that have taken place, which is a very big change in responsibilities. Uh, and, you know, there have been a number of uh, PR people who have... Well, there have been one rather famous PR people who's been... I think two, in fact, one company and one individual who's been fined spectacularly for breaking that rule. Um, And I just wonder if the panel thinks that there is a potential equivalent uh, for representatives of political parties, because like Sean, I am pretty appalled by the number of stories that you read through to paragraph 28, and there's absolutely no source, save the friends of a politician whom you know has no friends. (laughs) Um, The second is that having worked in party political PR, is that... um, Uh, I moved from working for the Labour Party in opposition, which I thoroughly enjoyed, but I went from doing that to working with with the media more directly and then into uh, consultancy and then into the private sector. And people asked me continually, why did I move? And with some sadness, I moved from working with politicians to working with slightly smarter people who were journalists because why were they there? Because they were paid more. And then I I went from that to the city where I worked with even smarter people who were paid even more. So... Does the panel agree, if we made the, 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 uh, the role of getting into politics more competitive and paid them a shed load more, you would get better politicians who would actually fight their corner better and Matthew wouldn't need to be the opposition by himself? Uh, Mark Gallagher, uh, Director of Corporate Affairs at Camelot and poor that at ITN. Um, <clears throat> one thing that I noticed that, uh, from the contributions from all the panel is that politicians and political parties... Um, were only very briefly mentioned. There was a big focus on um, media, on media ownership, on how how the democratisation of media through new media developments. And I wonder if there is a problem um, with political journalism, whether we should look, perhaps picking up on the themes of the last questioner, a little bit about how political parties themselves engage with um, journalists and whether, as Polly briefly mentioned, um, politicians need to grow a spine uh, and maybe um, uh, adopt a slightly less Mandelsonian approach uh, to media management and be a little bit more direct and honest to the electorate via the media. Matthew, perhaps you'd um, just start and respond to that because I was thinking of your fantastic Mandelson story, which you may or may not wish to tell. Now, that was, <laughs> that was Peter Mandelson, according to Amanda anyway, telephoning Amanda when she was on the Sunday Express, saying, I will destroy you, I will destroy your career, I will destroy your family, I will destroy your children, to which Amanda replied, I have no children, <laughs> Peter. 
Um, no, there's no, no problems with um, politicians not having a spine. When politicians do have a spine, I think they're respected for it, and I think the press respect them for it. It's up to politicians to uh, demonstrate spine, and when they do, I think they'll, they'll find they get a pretty good ride in the media and a pretty good ride with, with the public. This was a story that the press did not uncover. This was a story that came actually from the Lord's Appointments Board, uh, which said we won't accept these three people. Chai Patel then spoke out in public and said he'd given the loans. And then uh, Jack Dromey spoke, spoke out and said we never knew. This was something which was not uncovered by the press at all, which is very often the case. And the press often congratulates itself for its amazing investigative uh, powers, but very often these things are going to come out anyway or come from somewhere quite else. And I think that people who live in the city and live in other worlds of the very highly paid, all of us at this table very highly paid, just forget that the median income in this country, where 50% earn less and 50% earn more, I asked a merchant banker the other day, one of your lot, and said, uh, what do you think that is? And he said, oh, God, this terrible bag from the, da- from the, from the, from the Telegraph, from the Guardian. I'm sure she's, I'm sure she's uh, very puritanical about these things. I'd better bid low. He said, what is it, 44,000? The real answer is 21,000. Well, do we really want to have our politicians living in yet, yet another uh, notch higher than anybody, uh, than most people do? Only 1% of people in this country earn over 100,000. Uh, and those who do tend to live in a world entirely surrounded by people who earn that or a great deal more, and they forget what's normal. And I think that the world of the media, what goes on in newsrooms and our high pay, means that we describe a world out there day after day in which the norm is seen to be at least over 100,000, in which the Daily Mail calls attack on the middle classes, people who send their children to private schools, that's 6%. We are losing any proportion in this very unequal society. We no longer reflect uh, normal life. We we reflect our own lives and pretend it's normal. And I think uh, the the last thing we need is yet more of that. I'm sorry I'm simple, but you kind of hope people want to tell the truth. What, Tony Blair? Um, um, As I said, you kind of (laughs) hope. Listen, I mean, Paul Dacre, on the story on Ruth Kelly on Sunday, uh, a front-page story that's not been followed at all, he ran a story about her owning a house in Bolton constituency, spending her, her allowance for parliamentary allowance completely wrong. You get a parliamentary allowance for your London uh, flat or house because your home is at home, as it were. So they just... It was an appalling story. How can... I mean, it's disgusting. It was disgusting. It was just get Kelly. It was just, what can we get this week? It was, it was an appalling piece of journalism. And, and I'm... You know, we, we also are appalling in our own time, but it was, for a, for a res- so-called respectable paper, it was disgusting. Um, but l- leaving that aside, I do think th- there, is a, there is a dislocation, I think. I don't know how long it's been going on between the political class, uh, which is the journalists and ourselves, and it's very much a London or Westminster village. And I have to say, I've not had a single letter or email this week about any of the stories on the front page, but I've had lots of things about my operations being cancelled, you know, I can't get my school place and so on, and that's actually the reality of life in the constituency. Matthew, I think unfairly we cut you off. Just just 30 seconds. The world of political journalism is a world of single sources. It's a world of rumour. It's a a world of, uh, of stories that may or may not be... True. Some of the great scandals of the 20th century, Horatio Bottomley, Lloyd George, Christine Keeler, 
they started as single-source stories. If there was some mechanical rule that you couldn't ever report a single-source story, an awful lot that matters would never have got out in the first place. Financial journalism, or rather... No, fin- no, 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 no. The, the, the giving of financial advice is a very different matter. You're giving financial advice to a particular person who may make an investment, and it's perfectly possible to define what, what the circumstances are in which that advice may be given and what, what, advice, what, what advice may be reasonably given and what may not. Journalism is a much cloudier world. It's necessarily a cloudier world. And if we have mechanical rules about more than one or more than two or more than three sources, a lot of really serious stories, a lot of really serious hairs will never start running. I think that is right. Uh, I mean, journalism, uh, getting, getting stories is very often like pulling a wee thread that you just, yes. it's hanging down and, and you try and pull more and more of it away and sometimes it breaks, sometimes, mm. very often it breaks, but, but sometimes it gets thicker and thicker until you've got a really big fish. And I, it, it's, it's difficult, I think it's, it's a difficult world um, from... Uh, from, a, from financial services, and it's, it would be horrendously difficult to police, and I think in the public interest it shouldn't be. Uh, but I, what I really wanted to say was I just don't get it about spineless politicians. Mm. I, I, I don't see where this comes, except from journalists who, uh, who say that, as it were, <laughs> lightly, without thinking it through. It, can you really believe that the Prime Minister is spineless? You could disagree with him, but do you think his job... Uh, the job, indeed, of any prime minister is uh, doesn't require a spine. How do you define spine? <laughs> do you think the, the leader of the opposition, that Cameron, when he makes a bid for, as he did for the leadership of the Conservative Party, was spineless when he got up on the stage and and, and gave a speech to his party? I mean, doesn't that take a, an element of courage, just raw existential courage? Doesn't most, don't most, constituency MPs need courage uh, to face the number of audiences they do to John, tell them... John, isn't this about visa, more vis-a-vis the press, though? The, yes, the, the, but, but this is what the press... I mean, the, the, the question over there said, how do political parties engage? And following on what Polly says, shouldn't they get a spine and take us on? Well, actually, it's difficult to take us on because we more or less monopolise, we, the media as a whole, monopolise their way of communicating with the outside world, the more so since other institutions, like the Labour movement, like... Uh, organized religions and so on have now become very weak and fallen away. These were media through which politicians could speak and organize constituencies. Now there's the media. To take us on is does take a hell of a lot uh, for a politician to do. Some are beginning to do it, uh, but it's hard. Thank you. Um, Can I just say one thing very quickly? Yeah. I mean, just one example about quite how, how utterly warped the press is in one direction only. Where are the hounds chasing after the Tory money? How has the story gone cold and gone quiet? They've, they've got 20 millions of loans. Why isn't that all over the front page day after day? Tell us, tell us, tell us. Labour's told where, you know, because the pressure is never there in the same way. press has fallen in love with David Cameron anyway, and uh, there just isn't the same impetus. If the Daily Mail and, the, and, and, and Murdoch and the rest of them aren't on the, on, on the hunt for a story, it dies. And if ever there was a story waiting, it's, we need to know where that 20 million came from too. Because there's so many hands up. I'm going to um, ask for questions now and then ask you um, if you'd direct your question to one panellist, please. Steve Bates is a practitioner of politics. I'm John Reid's special advisor. I've been interested in this debate and intrigued that you sort of think that we're run by media. Mm. I'm, I've never been run by media. Ever. We're run by politics first, which is how do we get people to support 
and vote for our ideas. Media is one important way of conducting that debate. And when I worked in the Labour Party press office, that was an important part of it. 22% of the Daily Mail readers voted Labour at the last election. Mm. We do not spend our entire time obsessing about what's in the columnists. We aim to get the politics right, and then we aim to communicate it in whichever way is available. The Internet's a great new way of doing this. You have to have your one-line snap that will work on your mobile phone. You need your two minutes that will go on to uh, 10 o'clock news or 30 seconds. You need to be able to have a conversation with Polly or Matthew, and you need to be able to write a speech which you can put onto the Internet and then let the bloggers and everyone discuss it, and then you pick it up from that and go back to it. You can talk directly to people uh, through uh, local campaigning and leaflets. You can engage in the debate, and politics engages with the media, but it's not obsessed by it. And do you think it's getting more and more powerful vis-à-vis um, the current set of political journalists simply because you've got these new I think, forums? I think political... I, well, I think politics, handled right, can now body-swerve some of this stuff that it yeah. perhaps couldn't previously. So, I mean, I'm interested in this debate, but uh, the developments on the internet, I think, will, will absolutely fundamentally change how we do our campaigning. And as the man responsible for Labour Party's text message in 2001... Some of us have been thinking about this for quite a while. Um, but we don't, you know, and then text messages get on the telly news because they're exciting and interesting to people who haven't used text messages before. But people who use the... the you just go to where the public are and you engage with the public how they, how they live. Thank you, you very much. I didn't give a forex. I couldn't give a forex for a closing time. Was that you? What do you think? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm the head of communications for Thames Water, so I've been at the storm of quite a lot of media interest lately because of the drought. I guess my question for... Well, firstly, to make an observation about the London centricity of the media. It was only when London was facing a host pipe ban that the, 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 the political <laughs> village woke up. Never mind that sort of Kent and Great Swathes of Sussex and Surrey have had one all winter. That's, by the by, we're fair game. But I, I guess my point for Polly would be, as a privatised utility, privatised by Mrs Thatcher, uh, we are absolute fair game for the Daily Mail. We have been besieged by the Daily Mail um, as, as a sort of a vilified for leakage. And if you were serious about an environmental perspective, vilifying us for leakage, justified as it may be, does not help the issues of climate change and the, the need to get everybody to save water. So do you agree with um, uh, Paul Dacre that... Um, that the, the privatised utilities should be vilified for leakage. I have a compliment for Matthew Paris. <clears throat> he must be getting something right if in the space of 72 hours a 58-year-old nurse suffering from depression in Ealing and a 27-year-old male journalist from a paper of a different political hue both said how fantastic his column was last Saturday. <laughs> um, the other point um, really links to having been head of communications for the Commission for Racial Equality. Um, you know, it might help if we had a little bit more representative journalistic political class as well as a politician's political class. I probably noticed this more because I'm from quite a large country. But um, you guys all pretty much went to college together, whether you're journalists or MPs. I'm a, a conservative MP, uh, a new conservative MP. What's your name? Uh, Brooks Newmark. <laughs> um, and uh, I was a venture capitalist. I spent 20 years in the city and decided to become uh, an MP. Uh, I happen to agree with Polly Toynbee probably for the first time in my life, um, and that it, it, you, you cannot, it would be very difficult to give incentives to people in the city, uh, however well paid they are, to become politicians, because I think probably the skill set one needs 
to be a successful politician uh, may be different than the skill set necessary to be a successful business person. I'm not saying they're mutually exclusive, but uh, they don't necessarily connect. Um, I, I guess I wanted to ask Derek or make a point on what Derek was saying. Um, I actually think the political journalism is alive and healthy, and we're an expanding universe, not a closed universe, because um, as someone who maybe originally could only get my political information either through the television or through uh, 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 a newspaper column, I can now, as the gentleman over there said, I can get text messages, I can look at my handheld, and I can log on onto my handheld device to get news information. So I, you know, I view uh, the information out there and the ability for political journalists to access uh, people out there is far greater today and will be even greater tomorrow because of the way technology is working. And I think technology is working to the advantage of political journalists. Thank you very much. Can we take um, Tim behind you, please? Thanks. I'm, I'm Tim Allen. I used to work in, uh, in, in political communication uh, in, in Number 10 and now uh, work with uh, companies on, on their communication. Uh, uh, my question is, is for Sean, and picking up on, on Leslie's point earlier about the difference between business communication and uh, political communication. Um, and what, if, if a business, a public company, operated in the same way as, as Number 10 operates and called in a bunch of journalists at 11 o'clock and 4 o'clock every day and gave them market-sensitive information, uh, they would quickly go to, go to jail. Um, and yet that is the way we expect our, our Number 10 to communicate with a bunch of journalists um, and not give information to the public, but give them information to very small select people uh, holding a lobby pass. Uh, and I'd be intrigued to know whether you think that's a, a, the correct way to communicate with, with journalism and the public in, in the modern age, or whether that should be broadcast and webcast and allow, allow everybody access to it so we don't have this clique of people who, who have the information in the lobby who then run out into Downing Street and are the, the priesthood who have this information and nobody else does. And I'd be, one quick point to, to Derek, just picking up on, on his points about the rev revolution in, in media, which I think is interesting. We are going to have all these opinionated people in newspapers, and Matthew and Polly are, are two of them, and they sell their newspapers on their brand, and that's fantastic, and they have their own, own opinions, and people buy them for that. And we do have a, a huge range of opinions on the Internet uh, through uh, bloggers and, and elsewhere, and yet we have very strict rules on impartiality on television, and yet we have a, a myriad of, of, of television channels that are increasingly uh, not dissimilar from uh, blog sites and, and Internet sites. Is it credible to carry on with a, a very strict impartiality code on television when there are so many different news channels? Or do we need instead for people to be clear whether they're watching an impartial channel or not an impartial channel and to make their own mind that if they happen to want to watch Daily Mail TV or Tory party TV, shouldn't they be allowed to? John, would you go first? Um, can politicians give information out in different ways? Uh, absolutely. I, I think, Tim, you answered your own question. I mean, I think the lobby system is ridiculous. And it exists because it serves the interests of, of number 10, which wants to shape its message. And, well, uh, and to a certain extent, it serves the interests of the lobby correspondents who, you know, are the privileged few. I fully support having those briefings on the record and in camera. Um, the, the trouble is that, you know, the Downing Street... On, on camera, on camera. So, sorry, I, didn't, I, I meant to say on camera, not in camera. Um, I think the I think um, the trouble is that you know Downing Street wants to modulate its message, and an awful lot an awful lot of the time the message that's given there is is kind of rather dull and, and tedious um, and, and all the rest of it. And so there's an argument that people wouldn't be interested. But some of the time it's it's the spin, um, and some of the time it's the lobby correspondents um, you know beating up on on the spokesman. 
um, and answer, asking the same question 15 different times in 15 different ways and getting exactly the same answer. So it can be rather dull, but um, I think it would be healthy for political discourse if it was, if it was all out in the open. Um, and to, and, and to, the other, to the other point about single sources, Matthew's point, I, I, I agree that single source stories um, have a role and a function. I don't agree that stories without any source have a, have a point and a function. Um, I, I think we have, to, we have too many of them. Thank you very much. Derek, could you just respond very quickly to um, the, qu- the question about is it credible to keep impartiality? And perhaps also do you agree that politics can now do this body swerve around the media? Uh, well, it is doing the body swerve. Uh, as I say, if you look at, um, uh, for instance, I was last week looking at um, um, podcasting in America from politicians, and they're getting between 50,000 and 100,000 listeners. Well, that's an extraordinary amount of people listening to a single person. On, a, on an issue or in the constituency. So the answer is that this is going to come. Uh, I, I don't know quite where it's going to go. So why doesn't Number 10 podcast before it does the lobby? And it's, you know, why don't you play the game? I mean, it's, it, and, uh, and what about the injunctions on broadcasters for impartiality? Impartiality, well, IPTV, take, you can't regulate the net. I don't know who's going to have a go at that. Um, th- th- there is... Uh, you know, WISIS has had a crack at it. The United Nations would like to own some of the land grab on it. But you can, you can currently put television on. It will be... I, I have home choice. Uh, that will be the way in which you receive information in the near future. Within three years, it will be quite ordinary to pick up this. It will be live television. In fact, it will be live for Christmas next, this next year. I don't know how you regulate all that. We, we just don't have institutions that can do that. So if you want to put your bias out, you'll be able to put your bias out. Thank you very much. Um, Anyone on the panel quickly on diversity? Just one danger of uh, the internet revolution, and and that is it will give us choice. And in the end, anybody who wants to read about politics, uh, hear about politics, will be able to find it directly in their own way through the internet. And the obligation on mass broadcasters uh, will perhaps lessen at the same time. And we may well move into a world in which those who are interested in politics will follow it and the rest of the nation won't have to bother with it at all. And that may actually result in a narrowing rather than a broadening of the number of people who take an active interest in politics. It might be because we're going to get wealthier as a result, so we don't need politics so much. Oh, gosh. Labour Party saying that. Which we? No, no. As as society becomes wealthier, it it gets ahead of the politicians. That's the disconnect. And therefore, it says, well... There's something wrong here. Well, what is the solution? It finds the solution for itself because it's better educated. So it doesn't need the political system in the way that we did after the Second World War. Sure, non-diversity. Yeah, br- briefly on diversity. Um, I, I trolled through all the Sunday newspapers and, and what last weekend, and, and what really struck me on the loans story was that essentially the same story was in, in basically the, in all the papers. And I just found it rather dull and uniform, and I wondered, you know, what kind of system of political journalism could, could turn out this uniformity, you know, across the whole of the mass media. If the panel could just literally, in sort of 15 seconds, make whatever responses they um, felt moved to. Yeah, it was very interesting. Yesterday, Charles Clark had, had a lunch for lobby correspondents, and it was completely on the record. And this was so surprising to some lobby correspondents that, that they reported it as if it was off the record. Um, <laughs> Uh, the, the, some, some of the reporting in the, today's press was it was understood that Charles Clark said, um, when actually, in fact, he did just say it. Um, so I think, um, uh, to, to answer your question, um, if, if, journal, if uh, politicians went on the record and stayed on the record, 
um, they'd be doing themselves a favour. Uh, yes, uh, just taking your question about water in, in, in a slightly more general way than you put, what, what lies ahead of us in terms of global warming and what we're all going to have to do is really serious. And if every time something important happens that requires us tightening our belt in some way, like using less water or putting a hippo in your system or whatever, uh, if every time it's, it's treated in the same old way as a, a reason to attack, a reason why not to, a reason why to dispute, we're all done for. In the end, some kind of responsibility has to come in where everybody agrees there are tough things we'll have to do. And, you know, if, if every time the newspapers come out and say, oh, no, you don't, then we've had it. Uh, on uh, 20, I forgot to say that looking back the 10 years and then the next five, of course, 24-hour news changes everything because you've got to fill it. And, and therefore, that's why newspapers have got to be comment and, ed and editorial and feature because the news has already been had. And I hadn't really explained that. And on, on us using the news, I only want to use it when it's helpful to me. <laughs> when, when my pensions, occupational pensions, steel workers at ASW Sheerness went broke and came to see me to say it was a condition of employment that they had to have the occupational pension, I thought it was immoral. So we then did the thing at Brighton, stripped of our pensions. We've done it every year. We did it last week. And we will win this debate. We've won 400 million from nothing. We will win 2 billion. Now, the press are with us. They understand it, but we started little old Sheerness people together to use the media to make our cause because we couldn't get government to listen. Thank you very much. Thank you all very much for coming. I'm sorry we overran slightly.